Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to the Real Tall Tales podcast. I'm your host, Cassandra Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny. Today, we're here with my friend Reza Binwandibala, who's the co-founder and CEO of Ice Cream Wala, along with his brother, Rehan, makers of handcrafted Indian ice cream. So not only are they fulfilling all of our childhood dreams by making ice cream all day, they made their entire production facility out of Legos. Wait, That's like the ones you step on that hurt your face? Like feet? Legos. Yes, actual Legos. So Reza, tell us the story of how you're not only living your childhood fantasy, but also reach back into your culture and home city of Bombay to get to where you are today. So I grew up in Bombay, India, although I was born in Toronto, Canada, but At age three, I was in Bombay, so I don't really remember Canada. We grew up in this part of town called Marine Drive, and we were right on the beach. And the cool thing about the beach over there is it comes to life at night, and it's a spectacle to see. So during the day, it's way too hot for people to be on the beach. But at night, there are thousands of people walking around. The cool night air, food vendors all around. It's uh, like organized chaos. Horns honking, people shouting, street vendors calling out. So it was a very vibrant food scene. And uh, my favorite treat on the beach would be this thing called kulfi, which is basically an unchurned ice cream. So kulfi came in all flavors, uh, the traditional flavors in India, and I got to sample all of them. My goal would always be to, you know, just try something different from the time before. It was more so the treat of eating the ice cream. And I, you know, later went back to figure out what I wanted to do. But kulfi was really cool. All the other items on the beach too. A lot of it was spicy, so you needed an ice cream afterwards. Especially after some Indian food. Oh, yeah. No joke. But what were some of the flavors of the kulfi? So a lot of times they would put spices and nuts and these kind of things. It wasn't your traditional uh, vanilla or chocolate, but it could be a cardamom or a pistachio or almonds or any of those kind of flavors with aromatics and spices. So we grew up and we didn't know at that time what great access we had to some of the most vibrant food scene in India. Yeah, then you move to, to America <laughs> and you get vanilla and you're like, take me back. Vanilla or chocolate. Oh, God, there's our spice. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we moved to Atlanta when I was 12. My brother was eight. And very soon we became the cool kids because we used to call uh, friends over. They would try some of mom's food and, you know, the, you either it would be too spicy or, whoa, I've never had anything like this. Or when can we come over next? And so that was the initiation we had to how food can influence mood or happiness or that kind of thing. Seeing that was really cool. Was it strange for you? Because for you, that was just your mom's cooking, right? Like it wasn't any different from everyday life. So to have people really have this experience of your everyday same old, same old, that must have been strange. Right. I remember it really came to light when one of my really good friends and still is, he ate a clove mm-hmm. and um, he ate it whole and he had never seen one before. <laughs> wow. And he started sniffing and he's like, what is that? It's not spicy. It just tastes really weird. And I was like, oh, my God, mom, he ate the cloves. So that's when I realized the spices or the ingredients that we use are completely different. But put together, they can create a nice taste. And so slowly we started going through the motions we did. I did undergrad here at Emory and then my brother as well in Atlanta. And we started realizing there's a real gap. So sure, you can go to the Indian store and get ice cream, but the ice cream had traveled a long way. So it wasn't made in the U.S. It was imported here. It comes on a container ship. 
uh, we started realizing that the access to dairy and the cold chain in India is way different from here. Like here we have cooler trucks. We have fresh milk available all the time. We don't rely on milk powder or reconstituted milk. We just have really good agricultural practices. And in India, it's more of the reconstituted powder. And- oh, Absolutely. yeah. And mixed with water and all sorts of stuff. Okay. It's also funny how much South Asians consume milk, right. given that we're lactose intolerant. Well, do you know the majority of people are actually right. lactose intolerant? Yeah. It is actually the mutation to be <clears throat> lactose tolerant. So less people are. So you might not, if you've ever eaten a big bowl of ice cream and you felt kind of mm, after that some level, but some people just react yeah. to it differently. So there's a whole study called rehabituation now because Indians and South Asians eat so much yogurt. And so our enzymes are literally changing and rehabilitating us, even though genetically we're not supposed to. We're just like, we're going to power through this and we'll figure out yeah. what happens. <laughs> Never stop me. Yeah. <laughs> like anything for yeah. the ice cream. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, per capita, India is the largest consumer of dairy products in the world. Wow. Wow. We didn't know it at that time, but (laughs) we were on to something, I think. Uh, We started noticing the ice cream coming here. There was a lot lacking. Like, we felt that the flavors could be better. And especially because we had access to such good flavors. Like, my grandmother, my mother, very traditional cooks. They used to take recipes, honed over generations, keep on improving it. And the food we had access to did not exactly meet the desserts in the Indian store aisle, the quality. So we felt, well, maybe there's an opportunity. Let's explore it a little bit more. Let's see what we could do. Because you're straddling two worlds at this point. You have all the beautiful spices and flavors from India, from your childhood. And yet here you have the richness of the milk and the access to fresh dairy that's not reconstituted powder. So you kind of married them. Exactly. And that was the plan. Like, we have the best milk or the best access to the milk. We traveled to farms to find good milk. We thought maybe let's try making some ice creams and let's see if we can take some old recipes that were for flavored milks and uh, translate Ah. those into Mm. ice creams. So flavored milk is a big thing in India because keeping stuff frozen is more difficult than you would imagine, uh, transporting it frozen. So a lot of times the desserts were in the form of milk or milk-based. So Over there, they would take spices like saffron and cardamom and different kinds of nuts and steep them all together in the milk and just cook it until the milk is reduced in half like evaporated milk would be. So you've got this real richness from the milk and then you've got the ingredients that are almost acting like aromatics to enhance that taste. And we thought, why not let take one of these recipes and turn it into an ice cream and see where it goes from there. Yeah, what was the first flavor you made? So the first thought was, let's just be simple and make a vanilla ice cream just to get the basics. <laughs> right. Wait, let's make sure we can make ice yeah, cream before let's... we start adding stuff. And that led us on a whole nother journey because the ice cream that we made on our parents' countertop was so bad that my father actually sat me down and told me, if you want to make ice cream, you have to respect like people who make ice cream. <laughs> you can't just take a few ingredients, throw it together, come up with a product in one night. It's just not going to pass anything. Like, you have to make it nicely. I love brown parents. It's like, I don't care what you do, but you better be the best goddamn ice cream maker there is. You got to go to a good education 
and do it right. Well, I love it because we always have the conversation. If your kid sucks at something, but it's their dream, right. would you tell them? Like if your child wanted to be a singer and they can't sing, do you as a parent <laughs> yeah. sit down and say, so honey, let's talk about engineer school. Like, But clearly your dad has zero problem, which I love because yeah. I don't think you probably wouldn't be at the point where you are today without that push. Oh, absolutely. Hashtag it's, brown parents. Yeah. No, I mean, my dad has pushed me every step of the way and showed me the right direction without pushing me overboard, basically. So this was the first eye-opening moment where he said, you know, try and learn how to make ice cream. And that put me on a path. I sought enrollment in a dairy science school at Cornell. And I went up there. I was still enrolled at uh, MBA program at Emory, but I also enrolled at Cornell. I went back and forth. That's so wild. How many degrees do you need to make ice cream? <laughs> I don't think I even... Re- I knew that Cornell had a great agricultural school. But I didn't realize there was a dairy science program. I had no idea that was a degree you could pursue. Right. So it's through the Extensions College, which is set up for helping people in technical jobs do their Ah, jobs better or to learn Ah. different techniques. So they have a whole bunch of different courses that you can kind of mix and match to get the perfect end result. And at the end, you get a certificate for completion and all that. But I was just after, I have no clue, like, how do I do all this? And so I learned dairy science, half of which I didn't realize was sanitation, chemical cleaning and like antimicrobial treatments and all these kind of things, because dairy is very sensitive to everything in the atmosphere. So you have to be very clean, very careful. I would have never, I mean, I knew that milk was like that, but I would have never imagined that half of it is about cleaning. Because I'm like, what else do you learn about how it's made, how to milk a cow? I mean, I know those seem stupid questions, but that's for someone who's never experienced dairy science. What else do you learn besides the cleaning part? So that was the main thing. Once you're past that, then I realize ice cream is just up to you. You play with the flavors (laughs) and you come up with what you want to make. Did you learn how to milk a cow with your hands? No, no. (sighs) Oh, that seems like, I feel like you should have to do that to be able to pass. Extracurriculars. I'm going to call Cornell. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'd like to give some feedback on your dairy science program. But they had an animal husbandry area and we saw, we visited farms and tried milk. And even in Georgia, my dad and I, we went to like every farm that was open to the public that we could buy milk from. I didn't even realize those existed. Like I know around fall, I will go pick some pumpkins from a pumpkin patch and I was surprised that some of the farms I visited had such an array of jellies and jams and farm products. And I'm like, oh, this should make sense. Right. Like, obviously, they're going to want to sell this. But just the thought of it being year-round open to the public to go see a dairy farm, it never would occur to me to go visit. But it sounds fascinating. Yeah. How different is the milk by the time it comes out from a cow and it reaches my cereal bowl? How much has it gone through processing? How different is it by then? It's a completely different animal. So... Milk here tends to be high heat treated pasteurized milk. So there is a standard of pasteurization called high temperature short time. Basically, all that means is they will heat the milk up very fast to a very high temperature to consider it safe for human consumption. Mm. Now, by law, you have to pasteurize the milk you use. You can't use unpasteurized milk. But there's another technique that's less efficient but in my opinion, yields a much better taste. And we call it low temperature, long time, or any combination of those terms. But basically it means you don't heat it as high, but you hold the milk for a longer time. So that harkens back to the old way of pasteurizing milk. So you would leave a much more caramelized note to the lactose in the milk, and you you would get a different taste. 
so all the bacteria or microbes or whatever, and it still died because it's been, I mean, for lack of a better term, cooked yeah. for a long period of time. So nothing can survive it the same way. It just takes longer. That's why it's less economical in terms of timing. And right. I'm sure holding on to a product, you want to get out the door as fast as possible. Exactly. And uh, that's why most places don't do that. Only production units where they want to uh, have the best possible taste as the outcome would go through all the effort to do that because it's vat pasteurization. You have a giant tank and you're just cooking for hours, basically, the way we do it. So when we were going in for setting up our production, we knew exactly what we wanted to do in that sense. So you use that almost caramelized flavor of milk that's richer? I'm guessing. Exactly. And we go even further because we cook it way longer than it should. Okay. Do you do that for safety and cleanliness reasons or because you want the taste? So we go past the safety and cleanliness restrictions for taste. Back in India, the milk, the desserts they would cook, they would cook it for hours. And so it just yields a different end product, a different note. Uh, Mm. Like I said, the main flavor note is the caramelization of the milk sugars that just happen over time. So it's a really nutty flavor. And we go for that. Okay, so it's for the authenticity of it all. Exactly. I could see that. People always talk about trying to open New York-style pizza stores down here or bagels, but you literally can't because it's the water systems in New York that change the taste of the pizza dough and the bagels. There's actually a bagel chain, and I forget what it's called, but they have water treatment systems within their stores to treat the water to make it like New York water so they can use it to make their bagels. So it's all about you can try and replicate something, but until you know the secrets, like, you know, cooking the milk for a longer amount of time to hit that flavor note, you're never going to hit it. Right, absolutely. And it goes down to a science. You need to know the fat content of the milk coming in. You need to know the diet of the cows, the species of the cows, because all that yields different kinds of milk. Oh my God, it's like being a a wine connoisseur. Yeah. Different regions. Was the weather great that year? Was it dry? Was it in California or upstate New York or Australia? What kind of grape it is? It all changes the flavor profile of the wine. So if you're sitting here being like the type of cow that you use, what they eat, all of this changes the flavor profile, the fat content of the milk. Yeah, it's like a wine. Can I give you milk and you tell me what cow it came from? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> what? I mean, we, Are you serious? That was part of our testing. Like, we had to be able to tell what kind of fat percentage it was or whether it was bad. And even to the point of how the milk was spoiled. Was it oxidization through the sun? Was it diluted with something? Was it a chemical residue? We learned all that in dairy science. Wow. Well, that's important to know, I guess, because if you are producing mass batches of milk, you need to be able to identify the problem if there is one. So you need to know if it's spoiled from the sun or for being mixed with something. Exactly, yeah. So that you can nix the problem. So all this started, you have this great idea and you've got now, you have the education to put toward it and you have the tools and you, well, that's the next part is the tools. Like, so how did you, where do Legos come into all of this? So Legos came in, from desperation, basically. We needed to start and get our license. We thought it was all smooth sailing. We had rented a facility, like a big warehouse, and uh, we were going to produce in there. The inspectors came in and they said, okay, everything is great, but you need to produce within a room. So we said, well, we're in a giant room, basically. They said, no, you need to be in a room within a room. So we'll come back next time and you can start production if you've got the room ready. So like, was it like a standalone facility and they wanted you to have a separate 
enclosed area inside that? Yes, inside that to pasteurize and produce the milk. To create the liquid, the ice cream base. I mean, that's got to be, I'm sure it's a health code thing, yeah. but that's so weird to me because to me, if it's a sanitized room, doesn't matter right, if it's it a room a within a room. Yeah. Right. So that was the uh, regulation and we had to figure out how to come up with an idea to get this room going. So obviously the first thought was let's call up some contractors and get some quotes down and let's move forward. Obstacle came up. Let's try and resolve yeah, it. Yeah, like you would. Problem solving like anyone would do. You need something built, you call a contractor. And then the quotes came back and the quotes were 100,000, 70,000. To I build think, a wow. room? Yeah, to build a room. Within know, a with, room. With walls and, you know, lights <laughs> and everything. I mean, that's like a house. Basically, yeah. Like, but, honestly, if you move out yeah, to the country, could, like yeah. 100,000 for a house. Easy. They knew that this was a common request right. and so on. So... All the quotes came back. The lowest we got was $70,000. Oh, my gosh. And so we had a crisis moment that evening. Like, oh, my gosh, Ryan, what are we going to do? You're like, I just want to make ice cream. <laughs> I went to dairy school at Cornell. Like, I've jumped through all these hoops. Please just let me make some damn ice cream already. Exactly. And uh, my brother's like, all right, let's get on the Internet and try and find a solution for this problem. And so, you know, I was searching for cheaper building materials and he was looking up portable wall solutions mm. and portable roof solutions. And then he calls me back and he says, this might sound crazy, but there's this company that makes Lego bricks, giant Lego bricks, like the kid size ones. And they're starting to pitch it as room dividers. So like, hey, if you have a giant room and you want to divide it in two, just build a Lego wall. So this wasn't even like you were searching for solutions for your, I'm going to call it your clean room inside the room. This was literally you just finding on the internet like, oh, Lego is cool. Yeah. They're making giant Lego blocks. Use it to divide your kid's room with. And you guys took that and were like, this can work for us. The whole thought process was if we call the inspectors and ask them for pre-approval before we go ahead and do this, they're going to say no. Well, they probably also <laughs> would. Like, yes, I would say no. But also, I wonder if they really would, having not seen the concept in action before, not hating on the inspectors, but having not seen it, just hearing right. like you're making a clean room for food production out of Legos, I'd be like, yes, no, no, it's not happening. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Exactly. That was the thought process. And we... Then got the blocks in and we started building. It took a couple days to build and you know, got all my friends over, had some pizzas, built the whole room in a couple of days. It fell over once because we weren't <laughs> structurally stable. <laughs> but we called a company and they gave us some building techniques to interlock certain areas mm. and create really stable, you know, so enough to like ram it with a, a pallet jack and it would still stay standing. Wow. Well, because that's what you want, yeah. right? You're going to be loading in product. Yeah, it's almost a thousand square foot room, so it's quite sizable. Wow. That um, is massive. That's yeah. huge. How yeah, many Lego blocks did you need? It was 10,400 blocks oh my total. God. Wow. And yeah. what's, can you share the name of the company where you ordered it? Because I know people are going to want to know. Everblock. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're based in New York, and they have a really nice website now with shows. Yeah, sure, because you ordered 10,000 blocks for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we didn't at first tell them what we were using it for, but I'm sure, you know, they knew when they had to load a whole 18-wheeler full of yeah. Lego blocks. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall 
in those offices when the order came in for that many blocks. Because I'm sure some parents are ordering like, I don't know, maybe 100 blocks, right. 200 blocks, even 500, but 10,000. I wonder what they thought you were going to do with it. And what was your face when you saw the delivery? Like, did the 18-wheeler roll up or did you just get package after package? So I wasn't there when the delivery came in. They just unloaded it and they had stacked it neatly against one wall. I mean, they knew it was coming in. They just didn't realize how tall the pallets would be and how many of them there were. How tall were they? It was really tall, like I think eight feet pallets or like right just below the minimum of what was able to fit in the truck. Wow. And how many pallets did you have? I think we had like 12, 14 pallets, something like that. Wow. So 14 eight foot tall pallets. Yeah, daunting task. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool, but yeah, opening those and get, or unloading yeah. them all and then set, you have some great friends who helped you out with all that. <laughs> I think the most difficult part was when we unwrapped the wrapping from the pallets. Every block was already like, you know how Lego blocks are oh, hard yeah. to like pry apart? Uh, oh, oh my God. So you had yeah. to pry apart 10,000 Lego blocks. Basically, yeah, we had, uh, I don't know what we used. We all had some sort of like, a wrench or something like, like a yeah, like a knife kind of thing or like a butter knife or so on. We'd stick it in one side and then lever it. Yeah, like a fulcrum. And yeah, lever. exactly. And, and these then, friends get free ice cream for life now. Is that they got pizza? Basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. Anytime they swing by, yeah, and they do that pretty often. <laughs> it's almost like a weekly basis. We had fun though. Before building the actual room, we built different shapes. I know one of them built like a little throne for himself. Like, a, <laughs> like a, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it was quite fun. It was a fun day or a couple of days, and over the weekend we had it done. So, what did the inspectors say when they came back? And they did you tell them it was Lego? I mean, I guess you have to report building materials, or do you? Uh, yeah, no, we told them everything once they were there. But because I knew what the inspectors were going to look for from my training. We put up, you know, food grade paneling on all the walls. Mm. So it was completely sealed. Ah. We created a PVC roof and then put paneling under that. Waterproof lighting fixtures. All that we did ourselves. We knew it was all food grade. And we had the uh, Lego manufacturer, the Everblock, provide us with fire code for the, uh. for the bricks in case they asked for that too. Oh, nice. So we knew that it was going to pass and the inspectors just had a really good laugh and they started taking pictures and started calling up other inspectors <laughs> to say, you won't believe what we're seeing here. That's so great. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had visions of just Lego walls yeah. all around you, but that makes more sense that you covered it in food grade paneling. Obviously, you would have to. What an incredible way to hit an obstacle and then think outside the box to solve the problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... And I always admire people who, because it's you've hit so many obstacles along the way, like the first batch of ice cream sucked, right? And then having to go to dairy science school and then the problem of the clean room within the room. And just the fact that you looked at it and you took Legos and made a company basically built out of Legos right. is incredible. Right, right, right. And uh, growing up, Lego was by far my favorite toy. And obviously the construction material we were most comfortable with so it was, <laughs> you know how to use it you were it like was, we're already making ice cream what else did we do in our childhood absolutely yeah it came together pretty well well that's so cool wow. so where are you guys now today so today we have our product in 14 states we supply pints quarts to grocery stores we also have a pretty good restaurant business where we supply these handcrafted tubs of ice cream to restaurants that they can scoop or we also provide cups, ice cream cups, 
in freezers to restaurants for more fast casual or fast dining mm. places. So it's growing and we have a few product lines in development on the way that we're looking to launch in a couple of months as well. Can you order online or only get it through stores? Or Unofficially, you can order online. There's a little box that says, uh, you know, you can give your order. So if you know the flavors, you know what you want, you can. We are looking to have a whole online uh, shipping system with dry ice and all that set up very soon. Nice. And what's the website? It's called icecreamwala.us. And the Walla is with two L's. W-A-L-L-A. That's right. And what are some of your favorite flavors? My favorite flavors tend to be on the fruit side of things. I love the uh, summer fruit selection in India. And so we try to pay homage to that by recreating some of those. Also, it tends to be the latest one we've created because <laughs> after so many iterations, which takes 40 to 50 trials to get a flavor right, you're just so happy at the end of that process that that tends to be. So one we worked on is this uh, summer mango flavor. It's made with ripe Indian mangoes. That one with the fruity notes, the slight tartness of the mango, but then the sweetness of this Indian species of mango that we're using comes through really well. And then pair that with the creaminess of the ice cream base. And Now, do you import those mangoes from India or are there local providers that you use? who? There are, there are importers okay. and we buy it from them locally. Nice. God, 40 to 50 times to try an ice cream. Like, I like ice cream, but I think after that much, I would never want to see it again. I mean, it gets to that point when you're working alone. And then sometimes on the weekends, you know, we'll do trials. My dad and I will keep on going through iterations and so on. But the thing that keeps driving you forward is visualizing that end reaction of the customer when you know you've got it right. And sometimes, like, we're at the point now where we know we can get a flavor right it's just a matter of going through the motions of keep on trying and adjusting the ratios of different things. So that end reaction is what drives us forward. Your customer base is obviously larger than just the South Asian customer base, right? And right. how is it, you know, being in that market where you're reaching back to your childhood and not just Legos and ice cream, but really bringing a taste of authentic India to America and Americans who may have never tried something like this before, right? So how is that reaction? How have you guys been received by, you know, non-Indians, non-Pakistanis? So baseline assumption is that if it tastes good to a certain group of people, so if Indians like the taste of it, then that same thing can be extended forward to other communities. And we've had really good response. There's a very nice openness to trying new things. Our first reaction is, oh, guys, you put spices in ice cream? <laughs> what does that mean? And then we have to explain that, you know, some spices are not in the spicy sense, but in the warm or aromatic range. You have to simplify it for some people. Yeah. You're like, hey, you know when you go to Starbucks and you order chai tea lattes you go, and you it. like that? Okay, just go with me. Exactly. Trust me on this yeah. one. Yeah. While we're on that topic, chai and tea are the same thing. So yeah. you're saying yes. tea, tea every time you order that. Same with ATM machine. Yeah. Oh, God. So that you're not supposed to say so machine because the M is machine. Yeah, that's really cool. And so, you know, again, you really went back to your roots and even in the name, right? Ice cream Walla. So Walla is a very stereotypical suffix in a last name for Indian community. And so it's either where you're from or what you do or a seller of. And then you add Walla at the end of that. What does Walla mean? Does it have a meaning? Does it? So it can mean different things based on the context. But in our context, ice cream Walla means an ice cream seller, seller or an ice cream guy or an ice cream person. So is the anglicized version, I mean, I, it's not a direct translation, but would it be kind of like the last name, Sun, like Johnson or 
yeah, whatever, so, like yeah, son of like John. That. So I had a friend in middle school whose last name was Plumber Walla. His dad was a plumber. And so he was the plumber wallet. It's like the person of you can have like shoe wallet or ice cream wallet or like barber wallet. And so it's all of these things of like, it's kind of how you were described and how were you, you were known in the community as that is the person that does blank. Okay. So it can be from a region as well. Yep. It could be from a region as well. Is it specific to a particular part of India or... Could you Colloquially, be like- it's all over, but yeah. specifically, I would say on the western side of okay. India, more so, It uh, my last name itself is exactly what you said. Right. It's Bhivandi Wala. That means people that came from Bhivandi, which is a town in India. Okay. So we combined our last name, which was always long and people were like, how do you <laughs> spell it and all that? So we were like, let's turn this into something cool. And Ice Cream Wala, because Ice Cream Wala would always be the guy on the street with the little cart and the bicycle horn, like ringing it to get your attention to come buy ice cream. So when we were selecting our logos and coming up with ideas for that, we went straight to the cart. We knew that's perfect. And Ice Cream Wala would be the name. So for people of the South Asian community, Ice Cream Wala basically invokes in what a more anglicized version would be the ice cream truck. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, how cool. What a cool play on words. Well, it's not even a play on words, but a cool incorporation of the culture. Right. So your marketing is also really interesting, right? And you guys took an interesting route to that. So you talked a little bit about at a TED talk that you did for Ponzi Highland, how you got a lot of experience through Emory MBA and working with Coke. So tell us a little bit about that as well. So there were two really influential things on our marketing ideas. One was the MBA and all that process. We got to develop a product from scratch, the design of a product. And the other was my dad kind of channeling his experience into the product and tweaking it for the customer base we had. So through Emory, we were tasked as a project to redesign coffee for a Coca-Cola brand called Illy. So Illy is a famous European coffee brand in the U.S. Coca-Cola has the license for producing Illy beverages. And they were coming out with a canned beverage to compete with Starbucks, a canned and a bottle beverage to compete with the Frappuccinos and so on. I had known Illy from several th- trips through airports around the world and so on. Really great espresso and rich brand heritage to build off of. So they showed us that in order to design this packaging, you can't just have a good design. You have to understand who the target consumer is. What do these target consumers value? And then how to position your offering to meet that value need better than the competitors. So with those three points in mind, you can adopt that to basically anything you do in life. Like you market yourself, you market your product and so on. So if you start by trying to understand who is that target consumer you want to attract or you want to purchase your product, we took that approach. And then we had really good cultural influences by the vibrancy, the colors, the sounds, the smells from growing up in India in a specific part of India where the food scene was really prominent. And um, creating a design or a packaging design that combined our processing techniques, our artisanal way of making ice cream with the traditional spices and the flavors, the designs, the motifs of India and combining those two in a way that would appeal, hopefully we thought would appeal to our target consumer base. So are there specific colors and stuff that attract people or things that you think about when, you know, you're storing or putting into a freezer? Like what are some of those things as well 
the subliminal cues that we may not be, you know, privy to as consumers. So there's a lot of science gone into this. And in, over the last few years, it's become more and more developed way of thinking about it. But of course, there are certain colors that give cues. But our main focus was as a new brand with a limited marketing budget, how do we get people to recognize us in the freezer? And so the initial thought process was make it very bright and colorful and so on. But that didn't play off so well because we failed to account for the reflection of the light in the freezers, which is now switched to like an LED sort of light strip in all the freezers. So then we had to tone our color scheme down to make it lighter in color. But that meant it was brighter to the audience because light colors reflect light more. So we have this almost pale yellow background. But then our logo and our ice cream in the center is a very vibrant color. So you get the best of both. Isn't that crazy? Like things you would never think of. Like for me, you wanted to start an ice cream company that incorporated your childhood tastes, right? You did all this. You had to jump through the hoop for the Lego blocks and you should be done. Like it should just go on the shelf. But now you have to think about not just product marketing, but things like the reflection of the lights that the supermarket chooses to use, which is probably cost and bottom line based, honestly, could switch at any moment. You know, they switching to LED bulbs can literally affect an entire line of packaging because it affects how the consumer sees it and whether or not they're going to buy it. That to me is fascinating. Crazy. They say you see almost 4,000 ads every single day. 4,000? And your brain starts to automatically block them out. So just like, you know, in theory, you can always see your nose, but your brain blocks that information out because there's Mm -hmm. no need to see it. Now I'm looking. That's crazy. (laughs) And so there's now things that our brains automatically do because there's so much marketing, right? So if you think about billboards, you'll catch one or two billboards, especially if they're important to you. Like if you need to get your oil change, you may see one that sticks with you. But otherwise, you start to blend those things out because otherwise there's just too much information to process. Well, and ad blindness is a very real problem, especially on Facebook and social media. When right. I run ad campaigns, I structure the ad campaign to very much target for ad blindness and try and work around that. Yeah, Because even if it's like you said, it doesn't even have to be the same ad over and over again. It can just be one of thousands one that of, you're yeah. going to see. And we went a little bit further. So if we could solve the problem of people walking past and catching a glimpse of the ice cream, success on that part. Now, the next step would be to continue the sensory experience with the ice cream itself. So we kind of made the colors vibrant. We used all natural ingredients, but we had to account for certain notions that the product or the flavors might carry. So a mango must be mango colored. And that is very easy to accomplish if you use real mangoes. Because the color is there. But not only that, the sensory experience, including most prominently the nasal senses, have to be on point. Because we taste with our noses, and this was something so important that I had learned in food science classes. If you can get the product to convey a nice smell, Mm. then it will do half the work in terms of taste. It's very hard for ice cream to have smell because it's frozen. But the key is milk fat can absorb some of the flavor and sensory molecules and hold them in the fat. And then when the fat hits your tongue or the ice cream hits your tongue and starts to dissipate and melt, the scent travels from the inside to your nostrils and that creates a really good flavor. 
So, oh, like through the back of your mouth, up, right. yeah, like internally, not so, yeah, okay. yeah, internally. And so, you know, fun fact: lifesavers have no taste; they only have a smell. What? Wow. Yeah. So, as a like test of our honor in college, our statistics professor made us all close our eyes, hold our noses closed, and put a lifesaver in our mouth. And we couldn't tell what flavor it was because there's zero flavor to it. It's only a smell. Did people still say like, Oh, for sure. Yeah, there was like 12% of the class who still was like, oh, I got exactly, you know, so there's like a statistic amount of it. Right. But that's why you can't taste food when you're sick. How interesting. And that's why, too, when you smell stuff like garlic bread at a restaurant or buttered popcorn at a movie, it's literally the best smell in the world. Mm -hmm. And then when you eat it... I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, I mean, it's still delicious. Don't right, get me wrong, yeah. but it's not as good. Like it smells better than it actually tastes. Right, right. Yeah. And it's also the strongest sense linked to memory of yeah, trying to remember something. Yeah, fresh grass. I think of my childhood. Like I smell hay. I think of horseback riding right, right. as a kid. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's crazy how those smells. I walked in somewhere the other day and it smelled like my grandparents' house in England. And mm. I just was like. I haven't been there in literally over 10 years and I feel like I'm there right now and I couldn't even tell you what the smell was. It wasn't like it was tobacco and leather and I can associate those things exactly with my grandmother. Yeah, it was just that perfect mix. And it's so funny because I'm thinking back and I don't think I've ever smelled ice cream. No. Right? I can't think of like, oh, what would that smell like to me? So it's so interesting that you guys went such a step further, especially with that Indian culture. Like the smell is really, really important. You know, you walk into an Indian restaurant, you can immediately smell it. So it's so interesting that you guys were able to take it that extra step, even with something frozen, to get a smell into it. That was exactly what we were going for. But we didn't realize how many reactions we would get that would, like you said, harken back to some memory. And the most overwhelming feedback we get for somebody who comes to our tasting room, tries the ice cream is, oh, this reminds me exactly of that time I was in so-and-so mm. place. And, and they're all completely different from each other, but it evokes some memory back to some flavor they had before or some scent or something. Which is kind of exactly what you wanted to do at the right. outset. We anyway. didn't think it would work so well, but it, it works. And we had to also tweak the product to get the most uh, sensory experience, you know, like cook it longer or put the spices in at certain times or cook it to a certain temperature to get the extraction of the essential oils and all that kind of thing just to try and design the best product we could. God, that sounds amazing. I can't wait. I'm looking right now at your website, icecreamwally.us. You're going to get so many orders. They're going to have to beat me though because I'm not the <laughs> order of a storm. Well, thank you so much for sharing such an incredible story of perseverance and, you know, standing up every time after one failure after another and really taking those opportunities to not only learn, but think outside of your box and really taking it a step forward and living out all of our childhood dreams of building Lego blocks and ice cream, but also what a wonderful way to share your culture in such a fruitful way to a completely other nation who would have never experienced something like that. It's really a great experience being here and also evoking a lot of memories for me. And uh, it's a fun experience. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you.